the proclamation of God's word. Our sermon text reading today is from John 12, 36b through 50. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Robin. When I was in middle school, my English grammar, to, uh, English grammar teacher was a man named Mr. Martin, and uh, Mr. Martin looked exactly like you would think an English grammar teacher should look. He, he, he was bald, he was very stern, he would only wear a, a, a tweed jacket and a starched white shirt. He was a very serious grammar teacher. If you've ever seen the, the cartoon Arthur on PBS, Mr. Martin looked like Mr. Rapper, and it was just amazing the similarities between the two. And Mr. Martin and I, we had a little bit of a back and forth relationship because I actually really liked to learn. And so I think Mr. Martin appreciated this, especially grammar. And I was also a real troublemaker. And so I was sent into the hallway multiple times every single week. Most of the kids did not like Mr. Martin very much at all because he was rather stern, but I liked him because he was a very good teacher. He, he knew how to use words, he knew how to organize ideas. And I remember Mr. Martin, even as a sixth grader, I remember him always insisted that you needed to have a good thesis statement. If you're gonna write a paper, if you had to give your, your class speech, he always insisted that there needed to be one point and that one point needed to be made very clear. And so I suspect that Mr. Martin would appreciate John chapter 20, verse 31. We have repeated this a number of times in this sermon series, but this is the thesis statement for the gospel according to John. John 20, 
verse 31. It says, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that is the thesis statement for this gospel account. That's the goal. John wrote this all down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And as we have been going through the gospel according to John for over a year now, we have seen certainly there's other stories and there's some other principles and there might be some different points of application for each person, but the overarching purpose is that this book was written to help us believe in Jesus. And yet, here we are now at the end of the public ministry of Jesus, and we are seeing something very different than this stated goal. Here in John 12, we are seeing unbelief, not belief. I mentioned last week that John 12 is during the last week in the life of Jesus. So everything starting in 12 all the way to the end is taking place during this last final week. And so this section here in the middle of chapter 12 is taking place anywhere from Tuesday to Thursday morning. Then, of course, Thursday night will be the final supper with the disciples. Friday, Jesus will go to the cross. Sunday, Jesus will be raised from the dead. But we are now at the very end. And in verse 36, we see that Jesus departs. So this is after all that Jesus has said in his public ministry. Jesus is now going to depart from the crowds and remain hidden. So the next time that the crowds are going to see Jesus is when he goes to the trial before Pilate, and then as he carries the cross on his back up that hill. But those aren't really teaching moments. And so this section here in verse 36, this officially ends the public teaching ministry of Jesus. He has said everything that he wants to be said. He has done all that he thinks needs to be done. He has done these marvelous, miraculous signs. And he has done all of this so that people might believe. Now he is going to depart. Just imagine Jesus departing. This is the drop in the mic. He's about to walk off the stage. And yet we see in verse 37 that many people still do not believe in Jesus. That's a a pretty shocking statement. It's one thing if you are in sixth grade and you are not able to defend your thesis to Mr. Martin, but when Jesus is not able to back up the thesis statement, we get a little bit more confused. And then we are even more surprised as we read verse 39. This is, therefore, they could not believe, for he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. The pronoun he there, that is in reference to God, that God did this. And so now we are super confused. This book was written so that people might believe. And it's not just that people are not believing in Jesus, but we actually see that God has a role in keeping people from belief. And so this is a very difficult, tricky section to understand. And so let's try our best to unpack how this all works. In this gospel account, the gospel according to John, the word that has been used multiple times is not the miracles of Jesus, but the signs 
of Jesus. And up to this point, there have been seven signs that Jesus has performed. Jesus has turned water into wine. He has healed the official son. He has healed the paralytic. He has fed 5,000. He has walked on water. He has healed the blind man. And then seventh and most impressively, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so those are the seven signs in the gospel according to John. Seven is the biblical number for completion, perfection. Now the word signs, by definition, means a sign is going to point towards a bigger message. So if you were driving along on the highway and you saw a sign for a restaurant, you would never stop at the sign to eat. You would follow where the sign is pointing. You would follow the sign's directions to get to the actual restaurant. Signs point to something bigger. And these seven signs of Jesus have been functioning in a similar manner. They've been building a case. They've been pointing us in a direction. They have been speaking of a bigger message of who Jesus is, about what he cares about, about his power, what he is Lord over. They have all been teaching us something about Jesus. And the first half of the gospel according to John for this reason is called the book of signs because of these seven signs. Now that book is about to come to an end and we're going to enter into the second half of John which is now called the book of glory. And we see at the completion of the book of signs that there is still unbelief. Now this unbelief, it is surprising, but when you think about it, we should not be surprised that even at this point, people still are doubting. It's been a a theme that's been repeated in the book of John, that whenever Jesus does something, some people believe and some people do not. Remember at the completion of the greatest sign in the gospel according to John. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, you have religious leaders that actually saw Lazarus walking around. The religious leaders, nobody denies what happened to Lazarus. Nobody denies what Jesus did. And so you would think, even though they are enemies of Jesus, they would say, Jesus, yeah, that that was a, a pretty nice thing you did there, you know. Lazarus, he's dead. Mary and Martha, the, the sisters, they were having a really hard time. They're struggling. We're the religious leaders. We're not really quite sure what to do. Jesus, we'll give you props this one time. Thank you for raising a man from death. That's what you might think. But no, after raising Lazarus, the hearts of these leaders become even more stubborn. At first, early in John, all the leaders wanted to do was arrest Jesus. But after Lazarus has been raised, now they want to kill him. So here's the principle. At the greatest works of God, there will always be some hearts that are softened by his grace. And there are going to be other hearts They're really going to dig in and grit their teeth, and they are going to despise God all the more. 
But God's work, there is never a neutral response. There was a phrase that the Puritans often use, that the same sun that melts the ice is the same sun that hardens the clay. Whenever God acts, there is going to be a response. There are going to be some hearts that are melted in belief and other hearts that are hardened. We've seen this happening in John, but we've also seen it happen multiple times throughout the scriptures. This is just how the human heart works. Think of the great acts in the Old Testament, perhaps the greatest act, the Exodus, when God set his people free because of nothing that they have done. He defeated the Egyptians, he set them free into the promised land, and as soon as the people are set free into this gracious new land, the very first thing they do, God, why do you set us free here? You just set us free into this, this desert where we're going to starve and die, and it's so hot, and God, we don't even like that we're here. There's an act, and then there's stubborn hearts. And then Moses comes down on the mountain, and he's glowing. And as soon as he is down, we see that the human hearts of the people, they've already created a gold statue of a calf, idolatry. It's the human heart. God acts stubborn hearts. People turn elsewhere. And that principle is not just in John. It's not just in the Old Testament. We also see it in the book of Isaiah. You'll see that Isaiah is quoted in our scripture text starting in verse 30. The book of Isaiah is a very long book. It is a prophetic book. And like all the other prophetic books, it can be a little bit hard to figure out what exactly is going on. The book of Isaiah was written about 700 years before Jesus, and Isaiah, as a prophet, is looking forward to this new age to come, an age in which the Messiah, the Christ, the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant, would come and bring healing to the nations. But like always, Isaiah is acting, and he is speaking for God. He is a servant of God, and yet he is rejected. And so was his message. The people were stubborn with unbelieving hearts. And that brings us to verse 40, which is the most difficult out of all of these verses to understand. Because what we see is that the people in the days of Isaiah and now the people in the days of Jesus and John, they could not believe because God blinded their eyes, and hardened their hearts. Now, it's very difficult to figure out this verse because there are two principles in the Bible that often feel like are competing, but the Bible presents them as being compatible. The first theme is that God is sovereign, He's big, He's in control, He has a plan that is going to come to fruition. Everything is going to happen exactly how God wants it to happen. He's sovereign and he is big. That's point number one. Point number two is that we are also taught in the Bible without apology that people are held responsible for their actions, for their choices, that there is a, a freedom for people to act, and people are held responsible for how they act and for what they believe. And so we have these two ideas that seem to buck up against one another, and yet the Bible tells us that there is no tension, but both are absolutely true. So here is how most theologians try to understand this great dilemma. 
If you want to take notes, the first principle is what theologians call God as the first cause. That God is, yes, sovereign and big and in control, and He is the reason for all things. God is the first cause. But God, as the first cause, orders the world to fall out according to the nature of secondary causes. So, I get this all from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5. Secondary causes is in reference to us, to our wills, to our decisions, to our freedom. And there are places in the Bible that talk clearly about God as the first cause in salvation. You get most famously now of Romans chapter 9 in reference to Pharaoh. But here in John, this section is actually more in reference to secondary causes. That the people see what God has done, and yet they say, I don't like it. I don't like God. I don't like what God says. I don't like what God commands. I am threatened by God. I do not believe in God. And as a result, God says, because you do not believe, I am going to discipline you all the more by hardening your heart. The more that the heart hardens, the more the heart is actually getting what it initially wants. The heart did not want God in the first place. Here's how William Hendrickson says that he's a commentator. He says, this hardening, however, is a punishment for their own sin. God is love. His invitations, his warnings, his admonitions are always sincere and earnest. However, when man rejects him and his word, dire punishment results. God hardens the man who hardens himself. So that's the key here. God hardens the man, God hardens the woman, who hardens him or herself. So so we need to state what what this does not mean. This does not mean at all that there are some people that really want to believe in Jesus, but they just can't believe. It's not as if, you know, some, some people are knocking on the door of heaven, God, please let me in. And God says, no, I'm not going to let you in. It's not how it works. You see, the, the human heart is, is not good. It's not even neutral. These people are acting on their own belief. And God will judge their unbelief by handing them over to it. One of the most influential books in my life is The Great Divorce. It's written by C.S. Lewis. And why it's been so helpful for me is that in this book, C.S. Lewis, in, in a way that only he can as, as this, this brilliant British author with illustrations, he describes the different positions of the hearts that are in heaven and the hearts that are in hell. And the name of this book is The Great Divorce, and so this is the greatest divorce amongst mankind, the separation of hearts that are running after God and belief and hearts that are running after themselves. So this divorce is not static, but is ever-growing. And this is one of the great lines in the book. Lewis writes, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and to those whom God says in the end, 
thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. So when you get to heaven, there's going to be filled with people that say, I saw the signs of Jesus. I, I, I saw what God did. I believed in God. God, I belong to you. Thy will be done. And in hell, there will be those that say, God, I saw your signs. And I did not like what I saw. I do not like you. I do not like your son. So God will say to those people, okay, your will be done. I'll give you what you want, which is to be handed over to yourself. That's what's happening here in John chapter 12. After all that Jesus has done in the book of signs, God says, you don't want Jesus, fine. You don't get him. Now, if you were to slow down and read this section very carefully, at least when I did, the verse that really stuck out to me is verse 41. Look with me real quick in your bulletin, just so you see it. It's such an amazing verse. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. The him there is in reference to Jesus. So again, Isaiah is written 700 years before Jesus, and yet John is now saying that when Isaiah spoke these things, it was because he saw the glory of Jesus. That, that's what the hymn is referring to here. It's, it's in reference to Jesus. And so we ask now, well, what could that mean? Because we know Isaiah and Jesus did not literally meet. They're, they're separated by hundreds of years. There are some commentators that think Isaiah saw a, a pre-incarnate version of Jesus. I, I just, I don't think that's true because Isaiah never says it. I can't say definitively. I just think Isaiah would have mentioned that. Here's what Isaiah saw. He saw the shadows of the Christ to come. As, as he's writing this book, as he is being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking for God, he is seeing hints of Jesus. He saw glimpses of the type of Christ that would come, the type of things that Christ would do. Isaiah saw shadows of Christ. Isaiah saw that the Christ, the Savior, was to be born to a virgin woman. I get that from Isaiah chapter 7. That reads, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah saw that the Savior child will be unlike anyone that has ever been born. From Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah saw that this child would grow into a man, and yet he would have no form or majesty that we should look at him, or any beauty that we should desire him. It's from Isaiah 53, 2. And namely, chiefly, Isaiah saw Jesus as the suffering servant. Remember, John chapter 12, it is the end of the book of signs. We are now about to enter into the book of glory, which is the story of the suffering servant. This is what Isaiah saw from Isaiah 53. Isaiah saw that Christ would bear our griefs, that Christ would be smitten by God and afflicted. Isaiah saw that Jesus was to be pierced and crushed because of iniquities and sin. 
Jesus saw, or Isaiah saw that Jesus was to be led like a lamb before the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears. Isaiah saw that the grave of Jesus would be with the wicked, that it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus, that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors, that Jesus would pour his soul out to death because he bore the sins of many. Isaiah saw all of that, saw the glory of the suffering servant, all so that many might be made righteous. I get all of that from Isaiah 53. That's what Isaiah saw. Now, he did not see all the details or the specifics of how it has come to pass, but God granted to him a little taste, a little insight into who Jesus would be and what he would come to do. It was a hint of the gospel that God, for no other reason than that he, than that he is simply kind and gracious, would send his son to live, to die, to suffer, to be the suffering servant that would be crushed by God. So John chapter 12, as the book of signs comes to an end, and as we are about to enter into the book of glory, we see that there is one glorious sign left to be done. Out of all that Jesus has done so far in this book, walking on water and feeding 5,000 people and turning water into wine, there is one sign left to be accomplished. It is the sign of the suffering servant. Real quickly, quick summary of verses 45 through 50. The quick summary is that God the Father and God the Son have a plan to redeem a people together. It's been one plan, and the plan always focuses on the cross of Jesus Christ. So yes, there are many people in our culture that say, well, there's many paths to climb a mountain. It only matters that you would get to the top of the summit. Your actual path does not matter. Same thing with religion. The only thing that matters is that you would get to the top. Your religious path does not matter. But we must insist here that that is absolute garbage, because Jesus very clearly says in verse 45, whoever sees him who sent me sees me. If you want to see God, you must see Jesus. And so seeing God is not found in the cross-examination of different religions or the lowest common religious denominator or the beauty of nature or navel-gazing at the God that is within us. You want God, you need to look to Jesus. Coming off of the first paragraph, how do you see Jesus? You see his signs and you believe in him. And you do not let your heart become hard lest God hand you over to your hardened hearts. You need to be soft towards God. You need to believe in Him. You know, one of the, the great things about being a parent is that you get a, a very raw look into human nature. You know, once you become an adult, you, you have manners and you're supposed to be socially decent, and you, you know how to manipulate the system to get exactly what you want. But, but, but toddlers especially, they, they have none of those reservations or senses. And so I can think of multiple times when my, my children were, were toddlers, they did something wrong, and Vanessa or I would say, you know, all you need to do is apologize and then you can come back and sit with us at the dinner table, or, or all you need to do is soften your heart and you can have dessert, you can have ice cream or brownies. 
And toddlers, especially in their little sinful, proud hearts, they just sort of cross their hands and it's like, no way, mom, am I ever going to, you know, do that. And they kind of stare at you like, I mean, how dare you even question me? It's foolish. It's childish. It's an invitation to desert. And yet these little kids are digging in their heels and gritting their teeth and saying, I am not going to come to you. Hard, foolish hearts. And that's how we can be with God. After all that he has done, after all that he has accomplished, after giving the free gift of the Son for you, all you need to do is let down your guard, be soft, be quick to repent, take God at his word, believe his promises. Don't be a child stuck in your sinful pride. Come to Jesus. Come to Christ. One last verse from Isaiah. One more thing that Isaiah saw about the glory of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 55. Come, believe. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. See, so many people are threatened by belief in Jesus. They they think Jesus is going to rob from them or is going to impose or he is going to take it. So they put up all these guards and I am not going to believe in Jesus no matter what. I am not going to lose my sense of self. But belief in Jesus, it's not a threat. It's an invitation to the full grace of Christ. It is the beginning of the restoration of your nature, of you being the most full human that God has created you to be. Belief in Jesus is an invitation into free, unearned, unmerited, undistilled, unilateral, sovereignly given grace. So be done with the pettiness of unbelief and come to Jesus before God would hand you over to the hardness of your very own heart. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for soft hearts. We know that even in the hearts of those here this morning that have walked with you for a number of years, there is still a stubbornness, there is still a pride. Oh Lord, if that be the case, take it from us. Help us not to be proud, help us not to be unbelieving, help us to have soft, receptive hearts so that we might receive the free gift of your son, this greatest sign that you have given for us, the sign of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Bless us now. It's in his name we pray, amen.